You're listening to the Pop Tart Podcast. Girls down. You already know. And he said, well, you have to be careful when you get that high because you're usually alone. You're almost always cold and it's only one direction to go. And so rather than try to build a brand, I suggest that people build their character, build their reputation. Getting any taste of success for me at that point was miraculous. And when it happened, I just wanted more and more and more and more and more. Hello, <laughs> and welcome to Pop-Tarts. I'm Emily Rems. My co-host Callie is not with us today, but I still love talking about pop culture. I love talking to you about pop culture. And today's guest is one of the most influential designers working today. Debbie Millman is an artist, an educator, a curator, and the host of Design Matters, one of the world's longest-running podcasts. Millman also co-owns Print, the oldest design magazine in America, and she co-founded the Masters in Branding program at the School of Visual Arts. She's the author of seven books, including How to Think Like a Great Graphic Designer and Brand Thinking and Other Noble Pursuits, which have both been published in over 10 languages. And her latest book, the new anthology, Why Design Matters, Conversations with the World's Most Creative People, is available for for pre-sale now. She also happens to be one half of one of today's greatest intellectual power couples, alongside her amazingly talented wife, Roxanne Gay, And Roxanne has also been on this show, making Debbie and Roxanne the only couple in our show's history to have both appeared on Pop-Tarts, and we could not be more delighted about that. I can't wait to dive in and ask her all about Design Matters and the new book it inspired. Welcome, Debbie Millman, to the show. Yay! Thank you, Emily. Thank you. It's so great to be here. I'm such a big fan. Thank you. (laughs) Oh, thanks. Um. If you wouldn't mind, can we begin with you telling everyone your origin story? What was your early life like, and how did you become an authority on design and branding and creativity? Well, I don't know that there was ever a plan on becoming um, an expert in any of those things, and and it's sort of a strange uh, path that my my life took, but. Um, I'm a native New Yorker. I was born in Brooklyn and lived there for the first couple of years of my life and then moved to Howard Beach, Queens, and then to Staten Island, believe it or not. And then um, between fifth and sixth grade, my parents got divorced and my mom took uh, my brother and I, along with a new husband and his kids, to Long Island, where I spent the rest of my formative years from sixth grade to 12th grade, uh, then moved to Albany to go to college. I went to SUNY Albany, uh, in the capital of New York, which was, um, really quite an extraordinary experience for me. I had a, a pretty turbulent childhood and adolescence and being away and finally beginning to carve a path for myself made it was a really, really wonderful experience. When I graduated, I really didn't have any sense of what I could do. Uh, My only skill, my only marketable skill was um, my experience working on the student newspaper when I was a senior in college. 
I had a major in English literature and a minor in Russian literature. Um, oh, wow. So I often joke now that I have a college degree in reading. But when I was a senior, I got involved with a student newspaper as an editor. And one of the tasks and responsibilities of the editor was to put the paper together. And so very quickly on the job, so to speak, I learned how to do basic layout and paste up, which became my only marketable skill when I graduated. I graduated in 1983, moved to Manhattan and found a job working as a uh, paste up and layout artist uh, at a cable magazine, which was all the rage back then because cable was so new and novel. And um, from there, just very slowly <laughs> made my way through the circuitous pathways of my career from graphic design into branding into um, illustration and art direction and a lot of writing. And um, now here I am today. Amazing. I want to ask you, of course, about your new book, Why Design Matters, which comes out very soon and is available for pre-order. It is an anthology based on over 15 years of interviews that you've conducted while recording your award-winning podcast, Design Matters. I'm very excited to talk about it, but first, I feel like I need to explain to you a little bit about where I'm coming from. I am someone who is functionally illiterate when it comes to design. Unless I'm going somewhere where I'm expected to look nice, I have about 10 of the same black shirt that I wear every day. I've never created a home that has any sort of design scheme, so all of my tiny apartments that I've ever had basically look like dorm rooms. I'm generally unaware of the way things look outside of like my laptop, my phone, or my TV. And Bust Magazine is very, very lucky to have a gifted genius art department because my version would just be page after page of glorious text. Um, so please, if you don't mind, can you start by explaining to me on the most basic level, why does design matter so much to you? Well, design is everything. Everything that is intentional has a design behind it. And I believe that the culture of design or the condition of design, rather, I believe that the condition of design really reflects the condition of our culture. But everything, even your decision to just wear a black t-shirt every day, have five of them, you've made a decision about that particular t-shirt that impacts every day of your life, because that's something that you are engaging with. But anything that we make, anything that we decide has intention. It's a deliberate decision whether or not we realize it. And so in, in, for that reason alone, design matters. Uh-huh. You know, I, I saw your amazing TED Talk, I believe that was from last year. And um, it, did, it sort of woke me up to the fact that even though I feel like I don't engage with design at all, like just being a human and being alive, like we can't help but engage with design. I just sort of feel like my abilities in that area are less, less developed than others. <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, I have the advantage now of being able to look at you and see you and you look really stylish. You have really cool eyeglasses. You're, you're not wearing a black t-shirt. It looks like you're wearing something really colorful. And I dressed pretty. up for you. <laughs> and, and so I would say that whether or not you realize it, you are engaging with design as you sort of visually communicate who you are to the world. We're constantly projecting what we believe in. We um, 
telegraph our affiliations, our beliefs by these visual symbols and signals. I remember years and years ago, back when my dad was alive, he had made a decision. He was no longer going to wear uh, Ralph Lauren polo shirts because he didn't want to advertise the logo. Okay. And and so rather than just find another t-shirt without anything on it, he decided to put a flag pin, a U.S. flag pin over <laughs> the the, the um, polo logo. And I'm like, Dad, that's a logo too. <laughs> you're telling <laughs> you're your affiliation to the United States. It's the same thing, just a different brand. Um, and, and he, he, he understood what I was saying, but he thought there was a difference and there is to a degree, obviously a, a branded nation is very different than a branded, um, piece of fashion, but the construct in creating them are exactly the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I'm starting to realize that I'm, I'm having my design consciousness heightened just in preparing <laughs> to speak with you. Um, you know, you've been doing your podcast, Design Matters, for almost 17 years, and you've done nearly 500 interviews with some of the most creative and fascinating people in the world, including some feminist faves like Linda Berry, the artist formerly known as Eve Ensler, who's now known as V, Amanda Palmer, Aminatou So, and Amber Tamblin, all of whom we've been super proud to also feature in Bust. In the introduction, of your book, you call the collection a body of work, a love letter to creativity, and a testament to the power of curiosity, which is great. It makes it so uh, inviting. But to make the book, you were only able to pick about 60 interview subjects to represent 15 years of your professional life. I've only been doing this show for four years. I've recorded about 119 interviews. And if someone asked me to pick 60, I feel like that would be so hard. Tell me about your selection process for the book and how you made it all come together. Thank you. It's a good question. And it was a really difficult endeavor. Um, it was made somewhat easier by the fact that it took me, I would say, about five or six years to get my sea legs as an interviewer. And so I just systematically eliminated all but two of my first hundred episodes because oh, they were just wow. so sophomoric. And I was so um, at the beginning of my journey as an interviewer. And the only reason those two ended up making it in was really because of the talent of the guests that I had and their um, conversational skills. Uh, the two that I included from the first four years were Milton Glaser and Shepard Ferry. They, they, they don't even need questions. To <laughs> yeah, they're heavy hitters. <laughs> <laughs> and so that, that helped quite a bit. That took out about 20% of, of the choice making. And over the years, because I have, I think, gotten a bit better at what I do, I would hope to think that, um, I was a little bit more um, attached to the more recent episodes Although there were some criteria that I used for picking what I did. First of all, um, I needed to be able to edit the interviews for clarity and inclusion because there was no way I could include every single word of every single interview because the book was only supposed to be about 70,000 words. It's actually a little bit more than double that. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, 
And an average interview now is about 10,000 words. So there was no way HarperCollins was going to let me publish seven interviews in their entirety. So I needed to be able to extract some aspect of the interview that felt both sort of timeless, but also timely. You know, I didn't want it to be something that we, we, I was talking to my guests about something that they had launched into the world 10 years ago because it wouldn't seem relevant um, unless we were talking about something specific about that thing that was also of the moment. Um, so it needed to be of the moment, but also representative of, of kind of any moment. So there needed to be something that I could extract. And there were many conversations where there was not an extractable 4,000 words. And that was the maximum that I could include from, from any interview. Um, and so I had to read them and I had to make some really tough decisions about what could or couldn't be included. On my, on my website for the book that, that I haven't even announced launching yet, but so here it is, the exclusive. <laughs> I just launched the website. Um, I included about five or six other interviews that I felt would have been included and should have been included, but I just couldn't because they were, they were so long that, that they didn't hold up to any kind of intense editing. Are you able to reveal who those personages are that are going to be on the website who aren't in the book? Um, absolutely. Clement Mock, Chase Jarvis, um, Brian Singer, uh, I can't remember the rest. Sorry about that. And I don't want <laughs> to go okay. looking now while we're talking. Oh, sure. Um, that's no problem. Um, but so that, that was one of the criteria. The second was, um, I needed to be able to include some really beautiful photography, of, of each guest. I decided that rather than show work, I wanted portraits. Now, originally pre-COVID, I was planning on going on a photo tour um, and taking photos of everybody that I had selected to be in the book, but that couldn't happen anymore. Aww. And so I ended up needing to do photo editing and find the photos that I wanted, but I also needed to have a connective thread that would hold all the photography together and not just look like 60 disparate photographs that I found by chance. I wanted them to feel very specific. And my criteria for the photos was that you needed to sort of see the soul of the person in their eyes. You needed to feel that you were looking directly into who they were. And so they're all very candid, in-your-face, no pun intended, photographs from some of the best photographers in the world. So that mm -hmm. was one of the great things about doing it this way was that I was able to commission and, and buy photographs from some of the greatest photographers of our time and have this really, really beautiful set of photographs of my guests in the book. Um, I'm so, I, so, oh, oh, I'm, I'm sorry. sorry. I, I just wanted to, I'm so surprised to hear you say that that's how you did the art. I mean, I'm not, I shouldn't be surprised that the queen of design has a beautifully designed book, but, you know, flipping through it all, the, the photos are gorgeous, but they all look like of a piece. They all look like the, they belong together. And I assumed that, um, they were, every photo was taken somehow for the book. That means a lot to me. Thank you. Because that's not my area of expertise. And I had a crash course in photo editing and ended up really, really enjoying that aspect of putting the book together. Um, there were a couple of people whose photographs um, I, I wasn't happy with. Mm. Um, 
or I couldn't get a photograph that I needed a very large photograph. The book is 10 by 10. So it needed to be a very big photograph in order to print at the quality that we wanted. Um, so at the very, very, very last minute, Oliver Jeffers did an entirely new photo shoot for me. <laughs> Thank you, Oliver. Um, and then Maria Popova, my dear friend, texted Elizabeth Alexander to ask her to check her email to give me permission to use a photograph that I had found like deep in the internet of her that I wanted to use instead of the sort of promotional, not promotional, um, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Very professional sort of corporate photo that was on the Mellon Foundation website, which is where she is the president. So I really wanted something that showed sort of her more poetic side. And I found this magnificent photo of her just by chance um, and wanted that one instead. But her people were kind of protective of her and I couldn't reach mm. her directly. And I, and I knew Maria was good friends with her. So. <laughs> Maria, please ask Elizabeth if I can use this photo. And so at the very last minute, it was like craziness. But but I got permission finally. I know that this question is going to be hard just thinking about how I would answer it. But do you have a favorite interview of all time? Ooh, of all time. I would have to say in the book... My favorite, favorite interview is with Chris Ware, the um, cartoonist and artist, graphic novelist, genius, national treasure. Um, Chris is very quiet. He is not someone that is gratuitous about what he says. You know, he's a very, he says what he means. He means what he says. He's very quiet very introspective and I was very nervous in in approaching the interview first of all he has a huge body of work and so I needed to make sure that I had really immersed myself in in the Chris Ware universe um and I connected so so deeply and passionately to his work that I think he understood that I understood his work in a way that allowed him to be much more open than I think he might have ordinarily been. And it's one of my proudest moments as an interviewer, having that exchange with him and then hearing from him afterward about what he thought about our conversation, which was very meaningful to me. So I would say that is, is certainly one. And then one that isn't in the book that I just did most recently was with Ricky Lee Jones. Oh, cool. And that, that's, that's airing this, that aired last week. It just launched. And there's a moment in the interview where we're talking about her music and, and she starts a, a specific piece of music and she starts singing it. And as somebody who has been, as somebody who owns every single piece of music she's ever made and has been a fan of hers since 1979 mm. and whose work has really highlighted some key, key moments in my own life. Watching her face to face start singing about a song that I loved was just, you know, I, I 
can't even, there's not even a word for it that I can find. I wish I was a poet. I know I could be able to express it in, in a more powerful way, but it was, it was epic. It's, it gave me chills just thinking about it. Um, you've interviewed almost 500 people. Do you observe any commonalities that the world's most creative people might have in common? Is there like a Venn diagram crossover? I don't know that there's a Venn diagram, so to speak, but I do find that nearly everyone I've interviewed is still searching for more creativity, still Mm. looking to create something more. They're not resting on their laurels. They're not self-satisfied. They're still insecure. They're still trying to ensure that they're living a life with purpose and meaning. And it was, it's been really interesting to talk to so many people and find that so many, even of my heroes are still searching for self-actualization, that they're still trying to be better at what they do, that they still wonder if their best work is behind them or in front of them, or if they're doing it at the moment. Those questions endlessly fascinate me. And in many ways, I think that I'm still doing the show because those questions are so intriguing to me and hearing the way people approach creativity in their own lives is is such a gift to be able to witness. So I think that that that's been a common denominator. The only two people that I can just sort of off the cuff have, have given me the impression that they were sort of okay as is with their body of work and, their place in life were um, the late great Massimo Vignelli and Milton Glaser, who, when I interviewed them both, they were in their mid to late 80s. And I think at that point, they'd sort of, well, aside from being white men, maybe that had something to do with it, but um, they just felt like, you know, they had no more fucks to give. They were just like, I'm I'm good as is. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) What you said reminded me of something that I feel like I read in your book, um, but you can correct me if I picked it up somewhere else. I feel like I read something that you wrote where you said that you didn't want to peak until the day that you died. <laughs> That's like, right. <laughs> it sounds yeah. like that. that is of the same ethos that you're describing of the people that that you interview, like not like just continuing to strive for more. Well, it, that and that that comment really comes from two very – specific experiences that I've had. One is in interviewing Paula Cher, Paula Cher, the great, great designer. Um, She's been designing the public theater graphics for several decades. She's been a working designer for 50 years and she's still at the top of her game. Like she still keeps reaching new heights and that's an extraordinary arc of a career. Um, But it's also influenced by, by David Lee Roth, believe it or not. (laughs) Um, the former lead singer of, of Van Halen, um, who, when I interviewed him, you know, I was alive in 1984 and already graduated college and was living in Manhattan. And, you know, that was the, the, the very popular music at the time was also David Bowie's Let's Dance and the police's synchronicity and 
Van Halen's 1984 was like the biggest album of the moment. And they had the biggest tour and the biggest video and they were sitting on top of the world. And when I interviewed David Lee Roth, I asked him what that felt like, you know, what does it feel to reach the top of the tallest mountain in all of existence, essentially you, there's no, there's no other peak. <laughs> you know, you're just looking down on everything. And, and he said, well, you have to be careful when you get that high because you're usually alone. You're almost always cold and it's only one direction to go. Mm. And that was really profoundly impacted me. And in thinking about Paula, you're thinking that Paula's taken slow steps up the mountain the whole way and has yet to reach her peak. You know, she's, she's still doing the best work of her life. And every time she launches something new, it feels like she just sort of hits it out of the park. And if there were ever a career that I would like to emulate in terms of the pace, you know, it would be, it would be that. And I would hate to think that my best work was ever behind me. And so that's why I said that I'd like to peak before the day before I die. <laughs> I feel like it's, that's like a little, a little nugget that I'm going to take with me. <laughs> you know, you've been continuously recording design matters since 2005, and that makes it one of the first and one of the longest running podcasts in the world. It was also the very first podcast about design ever. What can you Tell me about being a pioneer at the dawning of this new technology and being a woman, especially in tech when like barely anybody was even doing this. Well, it was by accident. At the time, in 2005, I had just uh, celebrated my 10th anniversary at the branding consultancy I was president of. Um, and when I started at Sterling in 1995, I had been really, really um, troubled by the lack of success that I seem to be able to um, encounter. <laughs> I would say that the first 15 years of my career were what I would now call experiments in rejection and failure. You know, I just couldn't find myself. I couldn't find my way. Um, and when I, when I ended up very, by, quite by accident, in branding, which, and I started as a salesperson develop, developing new business. It wasn't like I had an expertise in branding. I was the only expertise I had at that point, if you'd call it that, was being a salesperson. And I was so, I felt so much despair at, at that time in my life in the early to mid 90s about ever being able to find my place in the world ever to be able to be a success that when I did find success in branding, which I never anticipated or expected or foresaw in any way, getting any taste of success for me at that point was miraculous. And when it happened, I just wanted more and more and more and more and more. And so I gave up all of the things that I was doing prior to that, you know, my drawing, my silly poetry writing. I put my guitar under my bed. I stopped doing textile work, which I did a lot of at the time and just dedicated myself 24 seven to this corporate job where I was making wonderful money, but more importantly was finding success for the first time in my life. And it was intoxicating in every sense of the word. 
And by eight or nine years in, in as much as I still wanted and, and needed and was addicted to that success, I did feel that my creative soul was potentially dying. And when I got a cold call one day from a fledgling internet radio network about hosting a radio show on their network about branding, um, I was intrigued because it felt like it was a creative endeavor. It was something I had never done before and could experiment. I, I persuaded them and convinced them to let me do the show more on design than branding because I did want to try to get away from that commercial aspect of what I was doing. Everything was about a return on shareholder investment and marketplace position and shelf presence. And I just wanted to try to do something that was ever so slightly off to the more creative corner. And they let me and they weren't offering me a job as I originally thought they were offering me an opportunity to pay them to produce a radio show. So it was mm. very much a vanity project. That's but still that, the racket now though. That's still how it works a lot of the time. Well, yeah, I guess it is because a lot of, you know, all the podcasters still have to pay to have them produce the podcast produce. And, you know, it's not, it's not an easy thing to do on a shoestring. Um, but at the time I was, that's how desperate I was to do something creative again. And so I was, I was paying them to produce this radio show, this rinky dink radio show. The sound was, was deplorable. I mean, you couldn't even listen to it. It was so bad. But back then people had very different expectations. Everything that we were, I was literally taping my show face to face with my guests. We were each holding a telephone handset, going through a modem being pushed through a modem to a production company in Arizona. The one thing that I could say at the time that was absolutely true was that I was broadcasting live from the Empire State Building because that's where our offices were. That's glamorous. <laughs> so, yeah, we were in the castle of New York City. And so um, that's, how, that's how the show started. Several months – so the show was recorded live. And it was, it was aired live. I had commercials. I had guests that called in. I had some regular guests that called in every week. Gregory. And um, my friends that couldn't listen to it live were having trouble being able to access it because the only other time we were able to listen to it was like three in the morning. So it was live once a week and then replayed once a week in the wee hours. And so my friend, Brian Gomez Palacio, who is one of the founders of the blog that I was writing for at the time, Speak Up, she suggested that I upload the digital files to iTunes sort of like an indie musician. This was before there was a podcast section. And so I did in 2005, inadvertently making it one of the first and, and now longest running, continuously running podcasts. Um, I don't know that I'm the only, the, the only woman still left, but there's about five of us, I think, from those early days that are still doing it. I love that. That's amazing. <laughs> I mean, I just think about it in terms of like, I still, because my my friends tend to be somewhat older than I am still from time to time explaining like, now, how do you, I listen to your show? Where is your show? And so like, I can only imagine, um, those conversations 17 years ago must've been an age gauge. You know, I, I, I remember, um, people, um, somebody wrote to me when I was first doing it, suggesting that I go on this podcasting with a capital C, like two words, podcasting platform. 
Um, in 2009, I went, I moved the show from Voice America, which is where it started, to Design Observer. Um, the late great Bill Drentel invited me to join him there with his other founders, Rick Pointer, Jessica Helfand, and Michael Beirut. And at that point, he gave me a caveat. I had to improve the sound quality. And because I didn't know how, he introduced me to Curtis Fox, who's still my producer to this day. So it's been 12 years of our working together. And that substantially improved the show. He's a great producer, gave me lots of show notes, especially in the beginning. And we've been working together ever since. And then two years ago, moved to the TED Audio Collective. It's still my show. It's still completely independent. I, I own all of the IP, but the great thing about being part of the TED family is that they're helping me grow the audience. In another pioneering moment in your life, you also co-founded the very first graduate program in branding, which you established at SVA in 2010. Tell me about developing the first curriculum for this highly sought after skill that also seems just like kind of intangible. Well, the interesting thing about this was there was no other program to, to compare it to. Steve Heller, who uh, helped found several really wonderful graduate programs at the School of Visual Arts, approached me and asked me if I'd be interested in doing this with him. And I was immediately intrigued. I had to create a program and a curriculum syllabus that would be able to be uh, sent to the Department of Education, to middle states, to get accredited to be part of SVA in, in a formal way, as well as to the feds because they're approving the financial aid packages and they have to ensure that the schools are legitimate. So I had to develop a curriculum before I even had faculty. Then I had to find faculty to help me teach the curriculum that I had developed. <laughs> and yeah. so they, they ended up having to take sort of a place in, in the development of this with something that was already created, but over the years have made it their own. And I still have, I think, about half of my founding faculty still teaching. Um, and that's, that's an extraordinary thing. I have such an incredible group of of um, professors that are teaching behavioral psychology and behavior and uh, um, cultural anthropology and semiotics and business strategy and economics. I mean, it's really um, branding is, is one of those fields that is a practice that includes many disciplines. You need to have an expertise in many disciplines. So not just creativity, um, as I mentioned, cultural anthropology, behavioral psychology, um, linguistics and semiotics, business strategy, um, economics is, is a huge part of it. Having the vocabulary to communicate with the business community is, is fundamentally important to being able to practice branding, as well as all the creative aspects that are sort of table stakes. And so it's been a really remarkable journey in that I think that branding has changed dramatically over the last 10 years, probably more in the last 10 years than in the last 10,000, as, as I mentioned in my TED talk, in that technology has allowed us to democratize branding so that the tools of capitalism aren't just owned by the corporation, but by everyday people that can use the tactics of branding to help create new movements and, and to create 
a better world for us to be living in. And, and that's, I think, the most exciting aspect of what branding is doing today. What you just said about the democratization of branding, it kind of makes me think about how over time, the total dominance of social media over our lives, like anybody I know that has any creative aspirations of any kind, like the the feedback that we get from like industry professionals all the time is like having to work on your personal brand. How mm. like because of social media, we're all now, no matter what we want to do, like we are now all expected to be branding experts for ourselves and to constantly be like sharpening and retooling and somehow um, enhancing our personal brand as if we were a commodity. Is that something that you guys address? Well, I have real issues with the notion of a personal brand. And, And in many ways, I feel like it's an oxymoron because brands aren't personal. <laughs> brands are manufactured. We create, we manufacture meaning through the creation of brands. And brands are not living. They might feel like they are. They might be positioned in the marketplace like they are, but they're not. They don't breathe. They don't bleed. They are fundamental constructs that humans make. And if we're aspiring to be a brand, then we're limiting our humanity in that construction. And why would anybody want to do that? You can own a brand, you can create a brand, you can manage a brand, but to be a brand fundamentally limits your humanity. Brands Mm -hmm. don't bleed, they don't cry, they don't laugh, they don't emote, they don't fall in love. They don't fall in lust. I mean, the (laughs) experience of a brand, people want security. They want consistency. They want uh, clarity. And and humans are the opposite of that. And as soon as you aspire to be that, you limit the sort of messy potential of, of what it means to be human, that sort of beautiful, messy potential. And so rather than try to build a brand, I suggest that people build their character, build their reputation. And that's how people can recognize you. But to, to consider yourself a brand, I think ultimately limits the potential of your humanity. I mentioned in the intro that your marriage to beloved author Roxanne Gay makes you one half of one of the greatest power couples ever. Just a few days ago, she wrote such a lovely Instagram post on the occasion of the third anniversary of your first date. It made me all verklempt. It was kind of about how you had to pursue her for kind of a long time before you could get her attention. And then once you were able to finally get her attention and go out, like that was basically it. And it was such a sweet um, tribute to what you've built together. Um, I The last time I checked that post had over 62,000 likes because every <laughs> feminist I know is obsessed with your relationship. But <laughs> I would love to hear basically from you, the story of how you got together, but also now in the last three years, what it's like to be in a very private, intimate relationship that is like very, very interesting to thousands of people. I can't even (laughs) imagine what that must be like. Well, thank you. Um, It's been the greatest gift of my life. I 
I did pursue Roxanne vigorously. She was not um, interested, <laughs> for lack of a better word, um, in in me for for quite some time. But I was steadfast and certain that she was my person. And uh, finally, after a little over a year of trying to get her attention, um, we went out on our first date. And and even then, it was a, it wasn't. Well, for me, I knew, but for her, I think it was a few months before she was also coming out of a relationship and I think was rightly so, you know, being a little bit more deliberate about what she was going to do next and and taking some time. I didn't want to be a rebound, even though I think Mm -hmm. I was a rebound, Um, but that's okay. We're married. So... (laughs) Um, but we, we ended up eloping during COVID. We were supposed to have this glorious wedding on October 10th, 2020. Gloria Steinem was going to marry us Mm. and then COVID. Um, and you know, prior to COVID, we weren't living together. We were each living in our own separate homes in different States. And then during COVID, I came to her house in Los Angeles, um, mostly because we'd have a car and have easier access to drive if we needed to and bigger sky and you know when she told me to to pack she was like oh pack for two weeks you know thinking that that's what it was (laughs) going to be um and six months later we were still in LA but she had very cleverly invited some cousins my dear cousin who's also one of my best friends who lives in California over for a weekend in masks and back we were wearing gloves too um, and then that morning that Eileen and Kenny were here, she said, Hey, want to get married this afternoon? And I, was like, <laughs> I have family here. Yeah. Why not? And so off we went to instant wedding, LA.com in Encino and with masks and gloves, we got married under a plastic hookah with a Russian officiant and, uh, we got, we eloped. Hey, that love was, grant. Love can happen at any age. You know, I didn't, Roxanne and I didn't get together until I was uh, 57. So, you know, there's always love hope that. for great love. <laughs> oh, you know, I, yeah, I just love everything about you guys. Thank you. <laughs> and I, I try not to be a creep about it, honestly. It's just like, you know, you, it's important to remind ourselves that other people's lives are not for our entertainment. Sometimes uh, people are compelling and it's difficult to resist, but I always try to, you know, not be a creep about it. She's so interesting. You know, living with Roxanne is so much fun. She's so interesting. She has opinions on everything. She's willing to try anything. She's just a, a glorious human. Debbie Millman, are you a feminist? I'm glad to hear you say that. (laughs) I'm a good feminist. I'm not a bad feminist. I'm a good feminist. I'm a fierce feminist. (laughs) Yeah, I'll say. This is my final question, and it's the last question that we ask all of our interview subjects um, on this show. And the question is this, whatcha watching? It is a broad pop cultural question. I'm talking about movies, TV, music, music videos, books, podcasts, 
Um, anything that you are consuming pop culturally, we want to know about it because it is probably very, very cool. Debbie Millman, what you watching? Uh, well, my favorite show in the last year was I May Destroy You, um, Michaela mm. Cole's show, which is just one of the greatest television experiences of all time, as far as I'm concerned. Um, about to watch the final episode of season two of the L Word Generation Q, but I do already know the end. So just so you know, <laughs> looking forward to watching it in real time, but I do know what happens already. Um, just finished watching Billions. I think that um, Brian Koppelman and David Levitan do an extraordinary job with that show. I love that show. I just interviewed Brian's wife, Amy Koppelman, and she has a movie coming out um, at the end of the month, um, which is just a devastating film. It's called A Mouthful of Air, mm. and it's based on her book uh, of the same name. So I've read both and I've read both. I've read the book and seen the movie. I also, because I was, I just interviewed her. I also watched her film. I smile back with Sarah Silverman and that was extraordinary. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. So, so both the book and, and the movie. Uh, So I've been in a bit of an Amy Koppelman sort of hive lately. Just watched Dave Chappelle's new show, The Closer. And Mm -hmm. I found it really disturbing and really uh, disappointing. Mm -hmm. That was, that was difficult. Um, I'm reading Nick Offerman's new book um, because I'm going to be interviewing him on the show. And I also uh, just read Nobody's Daughter by Ashley Ford. Extraordinary, extraordinary book. Um, From a movie perspective, I think the last movie I saw was Black Widow, the last, you know, sort of big movie. Um, We watch movies all the time. Still watching SVU, Law & Order SVU. Always. Uh, Now also watching um, the new Chris Maloney Law & Order, which is good. And I'm really glad that Olivia and Elliot have not consummated their relationship. I hope it stays that way. I still watch Rachel Maddow, of course. Um... And as far as music is concerned, listening to the new Billie Eilish, always listening to Beyonce, listen to a lot of jazz. I'm a huge Ben Webster fan, and so I kind of have Ben Webster on all the time. Uh, Also listen to a lot of Radiohead. Um, I think that's covering some bases. Yeah, definitely. Well, I must say that the rumors about you are true. You are incredibly easy to talk to. I can't believe it's already been an hour. It has been such a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, my absolute pleasure, Emily. It's a dream come true. Thank you. (laughs) I'm going to take a brief break. Then I'm going to get my co-host Callie back on the horn and I'm going to ask her and she's going to ask me what you're watching. Thank you again, Debbie, so much for being on the show. Thank you, Emily. Before we get back to the show, I want to tell you about our new sponsor, Wolfie Vibes Publicity. If you're working on a new project and find yourself in need of a kick-ass publicist who communicates well and works tirelessly to get you the coverage you're after, consider going to Wolfie Vibes Publicity. Wolfie Vibes Publicity is a female-owned and operated boutique PR firm that will get you where you need to be. And you'll even have fun in the process. Get in touch via wolfievibespublicity.com for details and quotes. 
and tell them that Pop-Tart sent you. Essentially, I started it because every female comedian I know was amazing and hardworking and hilarious and I knew would make great podcasts. And every male comedian I know already had a podcast and was doing their own thing. (laughs) Hi, I'm Kate Moldenhauer, the founder of More Banana Podcasts, a comedy podcast network entirely produced, hosted and led by women. We have shows about politics. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Let's Get Civical. When the Supreme Court puts stuff on their calendar, they use the word docket. So their Google calendar is a docket. Is a docket. So technically, I have a docket. You have a docket. We all have dockets. We all have a docket. Sex. Welcome to my vagina. I'm Jesse Karen. This is Rebecca Frank. What were ancient Greek dildos made of, Jesse? They were made of padded leather and, yep, anointed with olive oil. (laughs) Scams. I'm Caitlin Smith. <laughs> and we, we love, love scams. scams. She tells them she's a German Russian heiress and she seems like she has a lot of money and people buy it. That's yeah. basically what's happening. So as soon as she got a loan, she would cash it as much as she could out before anybody caught on. It's amazing. So smart. I mean, it's so like smart. Ten. I mean, it's terrible, but like to take that money out immediately. Because women are actually pretty versatile and funny. More Banana is a network of women's voices, unfiltered and uninterrupted. Find us everywhere you get your podcasts and learn about our growing roster of shows at morebanana.com. Hey, Pop-Tart listeners. Have you been trying to record your own podcast, but you keep getting bogged down by technical problems? Luscious Logan can take the raw recordings of your show, edit and produce them to give them that rich, full-body sound that you hear right now. If you have a deep need to express yourself and sound good in the process, reach Luscious Logan. LusciousLogan13 at gmail.com That's LusciousLogan13 at gmail.com If you want to have that luscious sound... Hello. Callie, we just talked to Debbie Millman. That was so fun. I love it. I love it. Now is the time in our program when I ask you because I've got to know and I want to know and I need to know and I simply must know, Callie, what you watching? Well, I I don't think I talked about this specific episode yet, but you know, I've been watching a lot of the Golden Girls. I'm on the Mm -hmm. Golden Girls repeat. And there's, did I discuss the episode, The Flu? That um, inspired the Friendy Awards that I have? No. Okay, so there's an episode that um, it's, I think it's season one, episode 21. It's called The Flu. And there's an award for the best friend of the Friends of Good Health Award. (laughs) (laughs) And they're all up for this award, right? And that inspired me. Like, this was back when I was in between apartments. And I was living, staying on Val's couch for quite some time and kept keeping a lot of my shit at her, her house, Weird Val, the other half of Faces of Week, my old band. And I felt like she deserved an award of appreciation. So I made her a <laughs> giant pair of sunglasses out of aluminum foil that said, I woke up like this. <laughs> and she came home from work one day and I was like, oh, Val, you're going to have to go to the room your room and put a gown on real quick. And she was like, why? And I was like, you're just going to need to put a gown on. And then I had everybody, all the homies were hiding and they came out when they were like sitting like in the audience, we put a bunch of chairs out 
And um, we gave her the friendy. <laughs> we demanded a speech, and her speech was, I would like to thank my constituents. <laughs> 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 and that was the first friendy award. And then the second friendy went to my friend Stinky, when I made him a crown of, like, red tinsel that looked like flames coming out of his head. And now we are plotting our third friendly award, which I won't reveal who it is because they don't know yet. Okay. And well, I, I think you deserve a friendly award, so somebody needs to surprise you with one, too. Eventually. I mean, I create the friendly awards, so I can't friendly myself. <laughs> I, I'm the one that decides. Well, Val's now in on the friendly. She was like, I want to be a co-chair. So she's co-chair. <laughs> So I had a lot of memories and feels for the Golden Girls, and now we're working on our next friendy. So that's been fun. And then I, I'm watching the new Sex in the City. You, you've uh-huh. watched it, right? I watched the first one, and I was traumatized, and I haven't gone further than that. <laughs> <laughs> I've been having a lot of feels, a lot of feels. So it's on HBO, and just like that. And, um, you know, I've been on my recalibration divorce tour, and I was over at my, at my friend's house in L.A., and she was going through some shit some dude shit. And I was just brushing her hair and telling her how smart and wonderful she was. (laughs) And I feel like I was getting a lot of those vibes at the beginning. And then when Samantha sent the flowers, that made me cry. That was so cute. I was having a lot of of friendship feels at the beginning, even though it is traumatic. But then there was, (laughs) there was a part where, you know, Carrie's got her podcast and she started loosening up on it and told that story about when a diaphragm got stuck in her vagina and, um, Samantha had to dig it out. No, you haven't mm-hmm. seen that episode yet. But anyway, she's retelling I haven't, story. but I've heard about it. Yeah. So it reminded me of when I was in college, and I get a knock on my bedroom door, and it was my roommate's boyfriend, and he was like, Callie, there's something lost in her vagina. And I was like, well, get it out. You were just in there. <laughs> like, why are you knocking on my door? So you didn't get it out? Oh, I got it out. (laughs) My other roommate, Dana, for some reason, she had a home speculum. Um, Mm -hmm. She had gotten it on tour. So we had a speculum, and we just opened her up. And It was a really old tampon that was, like, all the way in the back. And uh, I was just like, man, but the guy was just in there, and he was too scared to fish around. Huh. If he's too scared to fish around, then he doesn't. he doesn't deserve to get in there. But I will tell you this. When I was in, I don't know, high school? high school, college, high school, I think, um, a friend of mine and another friend of mine did it. And then, and it was a guy and a girl and the girl who was a friend of mine, (laughs) they did it. And then my friend who was the girl half of that duo was like, yeah, I used a sponge and it's like stuck. And, um, I put her in my parents' giant bathtub and I got a big pen and I turned on the bathtub a big pen? and I pulled that, I pulled that sucker out one piece at a time. A yeah. Cause it was, it was in pieces. Oh no. And like I needed to sort of like harpoon them. And I, I realized saying that now that it was so dangerous, but nobody was hurt and, and we got them all out. And I feel like I should have gotten a friendly award for that. Yes, exactly. Sometimes you got to fish around in your girl's vagina. That's what we do. Yeah. That's what friends, that's what friends are for. Yeah. Anyway, that's what I've been watching. Unfortunately, I am watching the new season of The Bachelor. I hate it. It sucks. At this point, it sort of feels like self-harm 
to watch this show, but I have been watching it. There's this girl named Shanae who's getting the villain edit, and she gets lots and lots of screen time, and she has special high-stress music for whenever she's on screen. <laughs> and they showed they showed special security cam footage of her eating all of the shrimp that were supposed to be for all the girls, but she ate they, they were like counting. They had a, an on-screen count of how many shrimp she'd eaten. And I guess it was like nine. Like I could easily house yeah, nine shrimp. she's supposed to be a villain apparently for that. She's now my favorite person. It was Shrimp Gate. And it's hilarious too because nobody ever eats on that show for any reason. So just the fact that she was consuming shrimp made her, you know, buck the system. The actual bachelor, Clayton, he is as dumb as a bag of rocks. Like – I know that the bar, like, for that show is very low. Like, everybody on there is just kind of like what whatevs. But this Bachelor, Clayton, is the dumbest that I've seen in a long time. And he's super boring. So this season is basically 75% about girl-on-girl crime, oh. which is not ideal. But, I mean, I mean, I guess I'm watching it for the Shanae villain edit, but they're going to have to kick her off How eventually. How did they pick the dude? You know, I, have, I don't watch The Bachelor. How did they pick Like, them? they... They pick someone who is rejected from the prior season of The Bachelorette, usually. Oh, so they, but they knew that he was boring. Why'd they pick him then? I don't know. Cause he's hot. He giant. Hot? He's, he's a giant man. I mean, I am not attracted to him, but I'm sure that there are people who are. Hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm attracted to the fact that he's a giant person, <laughs> but I am I am not attracted to his vacant, dumb face. Oh, speaking of giant people, I hate the news that Jason Momoa and um, what is her uh, that looks like my friend <laughs> Mel? What's her name? Are you talking about Lisa Bonet? Yes, Lisa Bonet, the hottest couple ever. They broke up, and it hurt my heart. Yeah, I'm upset. That's a beautiful group of people. I hate it. <laughs> All right, carry on, carry on with the shitty Bachelor guy. I'm I'm waiting for the honking to stop. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, The Bachelor is boring, and I hate it, but somehow I'm still watching it. The show that I watched that I loved since the last time I spoke to you is called Somebody Somewhere. It's on HBO. It premiered January 16th, and it stars one of my very favorite performers, Bridget Everett. Love and, uh, her. Love her so much. She stars as this woman from Kansas who's um, she's struggling with some personal loss, and she's back in her hometown. And um, she ends up forming this friendship with this guy that she didn't really know know in high school, but who worshipped her in show choir when they were in show choir together. And he's like encouraging her to sing again. And anybody who's ever seen Bridget ever perform, she has an astonishing voice. So like any show that's like, you know, it's a dramedy, but it has all these excuses for her to sing in it. I love it. And, and um, my friend and yours and friend of the podcast, Murray Hill is in that show. Oh my God. I Uh, love Murray. And it's, I love Murray. I love Bridget Everett. It's amazing. And I recommend it. It's called Somebody Somewhere and it's on HBO. And then the third thing that I've been watching is actually something I've been listening to. I've been listening to another audiobook by yet another British comedian. This time it is a British comedian named Sarah Milliken. And I am listening to her 2017 memoir, How to Be Champion. 
and it is adorable. She has this amazing like northern UK accent, which like almost sounds Scottish, but not quite, but is like full of that sounds soothing. Slang and is very melodious. Yeah, I'm listening. I'm I'm rewinding and listening to it a lot because sometimes I just drift off on like the pink cloud of her voice and lose track of what she's saying. So I keep rewinding. But it's amazing. It's like part autobiography and it's kind of self-help. And she talks about the story of her life, but there's a lot of it, at least in this middle part where I'm in now, about her divorce and how she overcame this really painful divorce and discovered stand-up comedy like as when she was like healing herself. I'm feeling this. From, I'm feeling and, this. Yeah. And it's, it's super funny, but there's also like some real talk in it. There's, there's this one chapter, chapter 15 about like how to get over a breakup that I listened to a few times. Cause it's a very good chapter. Um, and I recommend it. It's, it's lovely. And also, if you want to just get a taste of Sarah Millican without diving into the entire memoir, just um, type her name into YouTube. And there are so many funny clips of her stand-up. She's really funny. Um, and it's always a delight to discover a woman comedian who I've never heard of before. I'm here for and so her. I just dove into the deep end of the Sarah Millican pool since the last time I spoke to you. It sounds good for my divorce game. Yeah, for sure. And the last thing I've been watching is the Majestic Pop-Tarts Patreon page. Yay! We really need everyone's help to keep Bust alive, and hopefully you'll be excited by the goodies that we've hooked up for Pop-Tarts listeners at patreon.com slash Podcast. Callie and I, with help from Team Bust, have been typing up show notes exclusively for Patreon donors that include links to what everyone has been watching for all 123 episodes. We've got totally ad-free episodes available. There's exclusive content on there, like our amazing episode we did with Big Frida, and more. Please check it out at patreon.com slash Podcast. And now I would like to thank our luscious producer and sound engineer, Logan Del Fuego. <sighs> Muy caliente, Logan. And our girl gang at Bust Magazine. You can find me on Twitter at Emily Rems and on Instagram at Rems Emily. But you cannot find Callie on social media, so don't try. No, no, no. You can, however, email both of us. I am at emilyrems at bust.com. Callie W at bust.com. And you can learn more about this show at bust.com slash Pop-Tarts. And finally, please rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts. It really helps us get the word out, and we super-duper appreciate it. Until next time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> All right. You gave that man a black belt in, in dick karate. Okay, I did. <laughs>